Expanded Thinking is a new podcast produced by Talking Words. I'm your host, Walter Mason. And in this special eight-part series of conversations with writers, creatives, and spiritual practitioners, I'll be introducing you to some remarkable guests whose powerful ideas and extraordinary stories will inspire you to live a more fulfilling and more expansive life. In this week's episode, I'm chatting to one of Australia's most fascinating social researchers, Maggie Hamilton, about growing up. Maggie is a prolific author with a background in publishing and in spiritual work. She's the author of Inside the Secret Life of Fairies, What's Happening to Our Girls, When We Become Strangers, and the most recent release, What Happens to Our Kids When We Fail to Grow Up. We're going to talk about the importance of social skills, why reconnecting with nature is vital to our well-being, and why we all must eventually grow up. Maggie Darling, it's good to have you here. Wonderful to be here with you. (laughs) You know, I've so loved reading your book, What Happens to Our Kids When We Fail to Grow Up. Because it's it's not just about kids, is it? It, It's really about adults. It's about all of us and and it's it's about how we get to a better space, really. That's the bottom line. Maggie, I want to know, what was the trigger? What made you think to yourself, I, I need to write a book about growing up? I think one of the things that had had started to concern me a number of years back, Walter, was seeing friends... And also aware of it in myself, of people who had so much to offer life and were wonderful people, but who were becoming startlingly fragile about things that my parents and grandparents would never have been fragile about. And I thought, that is a sign that in some ways we're going backwards. Um in terms of, I mean, we talk about resilience a lot and I think we talk about it so much that it almost has no meaning now. But again, when I look at um, these, the when I look at those generations and what they had to go through, they, they had a level of stoicism. And I notice this also in travelling in third world places off the beaten track, which I love and I know you do a lot too, you know, you meet people who have a level of happiness we can only dream about in the West. And this is not to glamorise poverty. But part of it is they don't expect life to be happy all the time. Mm. And I think what we've fallen into is a toxic happiness, you know, where we have trends like smiling depression, where, you know, how are you? And we get the big smile which is insta ready for the photograph (laughs) but the person inside is crying or feeling isolated or whatever and seeing that I thought we're bigger than this we're better than this and seeing what's happening across the planet geopolitically and everything we need to learn to embrace those things that are difficult so they become easy, so that we can become strong, as we talked about earlier, to stand strong in the headwinds. And I thought I need to look into this. And in writing the book, it helped me um, be aware of those 
parts of myself that... And we can tell when we're in this childish adolescent mode, it's when we're, all, when we're looking for someone else to fix things. It's a little signal, aha, that's the adolescent in me again, okay. Well, you know what, I'm actually going to put on my big girl pants and try and fix this myself, or find someone who can. So it was, it was that observation that thought, I've got to explore this, because all my books really are about me. I'm, I'm really trying to work it out for myself and then share it with others. Yeah. So it's a journey of discovery for me as well. So I did, I, it helped me do some growing up. The book points out that by not growing up, we miss a whole lot of things. How does not growing up stop us from being passionate and adventurous as adults? Well, the thing about, you know, if we get stuck in our adolescent selves, then we're always dependent we're always dependent on others to pick us up, to make things right, and we always have to have that backup team or person. And that's a problem because there are times in adult life when we have to stand strong in the winds of change, of time, when there ain't anybody behind us to back us up. And it's about growing strength. And I look at the president of Ukraine. Here's a guy who was a lawyer, a comic. He puts his hand up for president. He didn't put his hand up for war with Russia, but that's what he got. And the Americans offered to fly him out. And he said, no, I'm staying. This is my job to stay. And it touches our heart across the planet because we don't know if we would be that brave, to be honest. But he is standing tall, and because he stands tall, he inspires others to do that. And we're in a very complex place on the planet right now, on many levels, and we need people who can stand tall in the winds of change. doesn't mean to say they're not terrified. doesn't mean to say that they've got no idea of the way forward. But they have sufficient strength to believe they will find the way forward. And that is powerful. And that, I believe, Walter, is what the juiciness of life is about. It's not about just having, you know, uh, constant entertainment, hanging out with friends. Those things are wonderful but ultimately they don't feed the soul. So what I hope with with writing the book is I do hope people don't feel guilty because as I say in the introduction, actually this book has helped me grow up parts of myself. It's, a, it's an, a, an ongoing process, but to take us to a better place. Mm-hmm. Maggie, One thing I love about your books is at the end of each chapter, there's a a little page of practical advice, tips, things we can actually do to address the questions that you've raised in the previous chapter. And uh, one of the ones you talk about, the importance of volunteering, you know, volunteering your time. Yeah. And I don't see much of that around at the moment. Do you think we've stopped volunteering? And, And why is volunteering so important? I, th- I think at the moment, you know, we've been hit around the head a few times with COVID. And I think what's been interesting with Omicron is that I think 
we've been slower to kind of bounce back in lots of ways and that that we've become so used to that yin space of retreat it's like we we are we're very comfortable with that and we don't want to often you know we have bursts of kind of going out from the nest and perhaps having a holiday. But this nesting thing is huge. And I don't think that's a bad thing because I think it. we've actually had to sit with ourselves, which I think is a great thing, not always easy. But volunteering is important because it grows our humanity and it connects us to others. And what I've found with my research is that, you know, we all have this view of I want to live in a neighbourhood of people just like me but in fact, the happiest neighbourhoods on the planet are those that are the most diverse. And it's in difference that something happens to us. And that's what volunteerism often gives us. It connects us with people who we wouldn't normally meet in everyday life. It connects us with other life stories. And as we connect with that, something it's like a whole lot of windows go open and we understand, you know, that while we have issues, there are a lot of more difficult things that other people are dealing with and it helps us put our own stuff in proportion. And it grows our community, our sense of community. We feel connected then. Um, you know, I mean, I live in Erskineville and my building, one of the things we do is we do stuff for people in the public housing and, you know, that's been really good because some people were a bit scared about um, connecting with people in public housing. You know, we have these kind of stereotypes of mental health issues, etc. And that's all there. But when you meet the person face to face, they become just another person for us. And the web of life grows and, and we all grow as a result. Maggie, you quote in your book, What Happens to Our Kids When We Fail to Grow Up, the commentator Charlie Sykes talking about, in his words, the perpetual outrage machine. Yes. The damage it's doing to our societies. How does being angry all the time stop us from actually finding solutions? Yeah, it's really interesting because we've elevated anger almost to be the the most desirable emotion we can have right now. And I see a lot of activism happening at the moment, whether it be around climate or other really inviting issues. But the problem is if we stay angry, it becomes a wasted emotion. I think the secret is to move through anger to find ways even the simplest ways at our individual level, how we can help remediate things. So if it's climate change, I'm lucky to live in a building in Erskineville where we recycle everything. We have um, towels that go to dogs' homes, clothes that go to refugees. All our food gets recycled that goes back to the land and the methane and the process of that goes back to the grid. And there's lots of other initiatives because there's just a group of people who care. So as, as I look at the whole thing to do with climate change, and of course there are big decisions that have to be made, 
what I've learned um, through previous books and campaigning on other social justice issues with government, that people who run in government are actually just like us and that they actually often don't have the answers to things. They realise it's a problem, but they don't have the answers um, necessarily, even though there's expert opinion they can call on. And what I've found, what what I did initially is when I was invited to these forums, I'd give people a full-on presentation about everything that was wrong. And then I realised what was even more powerful if I could leave them with two or three really practical, sensible things that could be implemented. And that's where we need to go, I think. So, you know, if if we're angry about Indigenous issues, then, of course, we have every right to be and we need to be. But how powerful then to look at ways we can infuse the Indigenous presence into our communities. And I heard at the weekend about one young Indigenous person who's done a lot of really good stuff. And he is now connecting people who care across Australia to an Indigenous elder in their community who they can sit and learn from. How powerful is that? And sitting with that person, I suspect, is far more powerful than just railing endlessly because that is a child that is looking for someone else to fix things. And I'm not saying we shouldn't nudge government, but how about finding ways in our own community to start to rename things with Indigenous names, which, by the way... I was excited to learn that, you know, in the West, we name things after people. So it's all about, you know, the, and it might have been somebody who's given a lot to the community, but often it's some grand poobah. But what do the Indigenous, our First Nations people across the planet do? They name places after the spirit of the place. The place where two rivers meet, the place of the cormorants the place of the two, um, the two mountains. And when you name places after the essence of the place, we're more likely to care for country that we are on because we start to touch the living essence of that ecosystem. So this is, I think, Walter, where we need to get to Our childlike self loves to rage. There's a lot of ego in rage often too. But in finding solutions, that's often a quieter task and often requires a lot more of us, I think, than just a banner and going on a march. And please, I don't mean for any listeners, I don't denigrate that because that is valuable. But we can't just stay and think we've done our bit by doing that. I think more is required of us. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, A good reminder. Maggie, when you mention the spirit of place, I'm reminded you're so much more than just a social researcher, that you're a woman who possesses quite deep spiritual beliefs. And you've written a wonderful book on on nature spirits, on fairies. Um, How do nature spirits make themselves present in an urban environment? Do you see them? I don't see them. I sense them. And um, 
what I'm passionate about, um, and that was my book Inside the Secret Life of Fairies that you're mentioning, well, I wrote that because I wanted to help encourage people to ensoul cities. You know, we have such a negative narrative often around cities, and yet more than half the world's population now live in cities. And we can have a mystical relationship with trees and parks and places where we live in the city. So that was why I wrote the book. So how do we connect? Well, nature talks to us through beauty and it talks to us through through the senses. So it may be literally the caress of wind on our cheek or we're walking along and we see an incredibly vivid colour of some flower or we smell the perfume. If you think jasmine in spring or sunshine wattle and suddenly what happens, our heart explodes sometimes with joy in that moment and we enter that eternal now of total bliss and it may just be for a nanosecond that is how the nature spirits speak to us through touching our soul in those moments because They want to bring us back into connection. The spirit of in trees and plants, and I don't see figures with fairy wings, (laughs) but I do feel the living presence around. And this came about when I studied Australian bushflower essences with Ian White, which lots of people do. I wasn't doing it personally with Ian. There was plenty of people in the room. We were all learning about it, but that was the first thing that connected me with my land here. And as I learnt about those bushflower essences and realised the healing power they had, which is the healing power that our First Nations people have known forever, I started to work with that. And so 20 years later, I now realise that nature wants to bring us back into connection to heal us so that we can get on and help heal the rest of what needs healing. And... You know, mystical, if I may tell one tiny little mystical moment I had, actually when I was working in Kirribilli, I was worked in publishing forever. I was at Random House and I'd rushed out one day, you know, busy day at work, grabbed a sandwich and went to sit on the grass. For those who live in Sydney, um, it's a lovely big sweep of grass down to the harbour and the bridge is, is kind of right there and so is the opera house across the harbour. So I sit down with my sandwich and as literally as I hit the ground, it was like this massive electric shock, except it wasn't unpleasant. It was just orgasmic, I suppose, would be the best way to describe it. And suddenly as I looked at the grass in amazement, it was like I was experiencing the life energy of every single blade of grass on that green. And for those of you who know Sydney, that's quite a big area of grass. And this life was coursing through me. And as I looked at the green, it was like a green I had never seen. So I suppose you could say it's like a trip without having to take substances, Um, which is in a purer place. And I don't say that from a, a sense of, you know, seeing myself above others. It's pure in that it doesn't have any 
side effects other than to heal and to enlighten. And that happened probably for about 30 seconds. And then suddenly everything went back to normal and there were kids playing on the grass and there were dogs and there were other people having lunch. And that's what's available to us when we start to connect with nature. We don't know when these things are going to happen, but when they do, they just bring us into an alignment that we don't forget. And so... All the things I write about, Walter, that is my passion to help bring us into alignment um, because this has been a life journey for me going off, as you know, beaten track around the world to, you know, really way up places and and deserts and sacred temples and, you know, all sorts of places I've been in search of the um, the ability to reach a, no, a new level of understanding of what it's like to be on the planet. And so that does infuse my social research, even though I do it from a very, you know, I do my research thoroughly um, and then try to turn it into very readable books so that, because everybody's busy, they don't want to be reading 40 pages of an academic paper I do that and then I find two zingy sentences to sum it up and give it to people and I love it we love reading it Maggie your books are wonderful and always inspirational Thank even you. though they're addressing some difficult questions at times yeah in a couple of your books you've raised the question of the quest for fame and mm. reality television yeah and I always um, I always feel a little bit of shame because when I was young, my biggest desire was to be famous, you know, <laughs> and uh, I, I think I was that first generation. I think and that's quite normal. Is it? Is it Maggie? In, in the world we live in, I think that's quite normal. Why I have a down on the whole celebrity thing and reality TV is because reality TV, when we kind of step back from it, is often psychologically cruel. It's actually cruel to the contestants because they're so manipulated um, including sleep deprivation and all sorts of um, techniques are used for people to reveal their less than ideal selves. And we all have a shadow self. Let's not pretend, you know, it's only some people. We all have that shadow. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's a world of winners and losers. So to me, it's a very wintry world. Yeah. So we don't see people in all their shades. We don't seek to build a bridge to that person to understand their story. We cast them into outer darkness or we put them on a pedestal. But it's a very uncertain world because you don't get to stay on the pedestal very long and you have to use every trick in the book to stay there. Um, and I don't think we're wired for that. We're wired to embrace our ordinariness and it's in our ordinariness that the extraordinary reveals itself and I must say you know having worked in publishing for years and you know I've mm. met loads of famous people over the years and worked with them the truly magical people are the most humble you know because they've they've sorted a lot of stuff out and celebrity I think is psychic vampirism we give our life energy to these people. We give them our time. We give them our love. Time we could be spending in nature or connecting 
with our relatively ordinary friends by comparison. And the celebrity needs that. It becomes, and we often see this in the stories of people who became become famous. They are extraordinary often and dazzle us in certain ways. But then that need for fame overtakes everything and the need to suck the air out of the room. And to me, um, that's not, it's not a great dynamic for either of us. Um, and I think of the wonderful black and white film Sunset Boulevard, which we I know we've talked about when we've had coffees to, and times together. I love that film because basically it's this ageing celebrity set in probably the 1930s, 40s, I'm not sure, in Los Angeles, and she's living in this crumbling mansion and she has this very solicitous butler. And, you know, she's still living as if she is a great star and she no longer is, although she dresses, you know, in her gowns and all this, and she has this butler who does everything for her. And then we get towards the end of the film. I mean, there's several strands to the story. It's a really good story. We discover her butler was once her director. And that's what celebrity does. We become faded and we diminish those around us. So here was this man who had you know, a lot to give the world who ends up becoming her butler. I think it's a very timely tale for us. <laughs> it is. It's very rich in symbolism, you know. In the, yeah. What's the famous line? It wasn't me who got small, it was the movies. Yes. You know, that Love it. sense of, uh, of living in a grand world. In What Happens to Our Kids When We Fail to Grow Up, you quote psychology professor Jane Gruber on how very important it is to have meaningful social relationships in order to increase our happiness. Do we have to work on building friendships or other relationships that are equally important? Yeah, I, look, we do have to work at relationships. And what I love about that um, observation was, you know, because we do, we have come to confuse popularity with friendship. Friendship is a complex thing and it can be a very difficult thing. It can be an inconvenient kind mm. of thing. You know, when someone else is having a drama and we've just, we have a lovely day planned um, and suddenly we find ourselves not having that day we'd hoped to have and there is an air of disappointment even though, you know, hopefully we do the right thing. But what was also said in that, which I thought was really valuable, is that friendship has, also, has now become about, and this is where the child, being the child, sneaks back in, catching ourselves in a child moment or adolescent moment, is where we have to be told we're special all the time. So we expect friends to be the people who bolster us up. Now, certainly we don't want friends who are cutting us off at the knees. That's not friendship. But we do need people who will be the truth tellers for us, kindly and gently. That is the that is the key to it, to say things kindly and gently. It also means that friendship is not about, and I talk in the book about the Peter Pan syndrome and the Wendy's, the people who are always there. And we all have these friends, don't we? That You know, they'd, if, if they t start to tell us about work and the problems, we could actually tell them because we've heard it so many times, <laughs> or the relationship or the family stuff. And it, it becomes something they get off on. 
So we also need to be careful about that so that we don't lose ourselves in being the problem solver, the person who always has to pick up the pieces. And my my tip always is for those friends who drain us, who we still love and want in our life, but don't want to waste too much time with them because these people tend to be the ones who always demand your attention is go for a walk in nature because nature brings everybody down so you've had a lovely walk you've actually nature's been feeding you and the friend who is full of endless same as same as problems by the time they finished having that walk in nature they've come down so they've benefited it with it but you don't walk away drained that's great advice and something I don't do often enough, Matt. You mentioned truth-telling. Yeah. Um, and it's something I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, we all know people who say something like, I'm just a person who tells it like it is. And you want to say, no, you're just rude. You know? Yeah. Or cruel. <laughs> or cruel. Yeah. Uh, what do we do with truth? Because we do have to be gentle with, with the telling of truth, don't we? Yes, we do. And <clears throat> I think there are lots of ways we can approach this. You know, if a friend is – I remember someone um, in my life and um, who's a, a deeply spiritual person and um, her partner had done some really dreadful stuff and she believed because she'd made a commitment to this relationship that she had to stay with this person and it didn't feel right at all. And so I just said to this person, I said, look, you know, we all have to make our own decisions and I'm not in your shoes, but we weren't put here to be a doormat. Mm. So we find gentle ways of saying it and, you know, at the same time, I think the other side of that is we always feel with friends, sometimes we avoid friends when they're going through a bad spell because we feel we don't, we're not equipped to deal with what the issues are. When in fact, what we need to do sometimes is just be there, see the person and hear the person and reflect back to them the emotional difficulty. One of the phrases I tend to use, because it seems to touch people, is to say, this is a really big time for you. And, you know, that must have been devastating. Or, I don't know, but I would have been terrified if I'd been in that situation. So you empathise. And we don't have to necessarily have the answers. But if it's a serious thing, perhaps we need to gently say, you know what, I certainly wouldn't know how to deal with that. But it may be great to go to somebody professionally who can do that for you, just even a session who can sit and listen and give you some good advice. So we just keep it gentle and kind. Um, and But at the same time, don't allow ourselves to be drained by the people who are endlessly caught up on their problems. You touch on intimate relationships on on a marriage. Yes. I'm, yeah. I'm I'm in an intimate relationship as are you, and we've just come out of a time where we've been forced into each other's company it, rather intensely. Uh, what's your yes. what's, what's your advice on 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 living with someone? Ooh, Walter, <laughs> I could talk pages about that. You know, sometimes <laughs> I think 
living in an inter- intimate relationship, you know, we talk about how wonderful and all those things, and it is. But let's face it, sometimes it can be quite a brutal business. And sometimes we can say something to a partner or they can say something to us, which to us is innocuous, saying it, or perhaps to the other person saying it's innocuous. Sometimes, of course, it's not. And it can wound us to our very soul. And I don't know. I've what One thing I've learned is that ultimately... My partner's journey has to be his journey and that I have to stop trying to manage it when it's uncomfortable for me. Um, I'm not saying you put up with behaviour that's unacceptable, but to give you an example, my partner cycles and he's had a few accidents, hopefully no more broken ribs and various things and when and he cycles 40 50 kilometers a day every day he goes out there's part of me that wants to say don't go and when I was younger I would have tried to kind of manipulate that but I realize I have no right to do that he utterly loves it And pray God nothing awful ever happens to him. But he's doing what he loves. But it's taken me years to learn that. But it's hard. And every day he goes out and he does most days. I have to steal myself. So I think there's often things in relationship. And I think also we need time. Our partners need friendships of their own across the sexes, that we don't necessarily get involved with or don't get involved with at any great depth. They need to have people who they can talk to about stuff, including us, um, and have their own kind of sacred space in those friendships. Um, And I've found that that has really been something that's been very powerful in our relationship. And there are also, I think, just one last observation with this. You know, we we all have in relationships passions that our partner isn't um, at all interested in. And the tendency is to diss that partner for that. Oh, you know, why do they like, you know, motor racing or, you know, whatever it is, Zumba dancing. Zumba or you know salsa dancing, and why do they love that? Because actually, what we're saying is, I feel uncomfortable because I'm not part of that. But just let them go off and do that thing, and find that passion for yourself instead, and go and have your own life with that. Go and belly dance or you know paint your nails you know, um, like the masters, I don't know. There's a a million things we can do. And then what happens is when we come back together, we've got something fresh. And that's so important. Absolutely, yeah. Maggie, I take it 
as a personal slight, you are dis Zumba da- dancing. <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> I'm, I'm the youngest person in my Zumba class, so I'm, I'm a star. <laughs> I can imagine. I'd, I would only expect that. Uh, you, have to come, you have to come and watch one day. I would love and to. And everyone listening is invited, by the way. Sounds good. <laughs> we'll do a concert. I love listening to you because... You seem to speak these truths, these sort of eternal truths. Oh, that's very generous, Walter. Are we all on a quest to discover eternal truths, Maggie? We are, Walter. And, you know, for some people that just sounds so out there. Um, How I would see it is understanding who we are, why we're here, and what we can do while we're here. And I think that is a life time's journey, or if you believe in reincarnation, which I do, lifetimes. Um, and what's interesting, you know, with the mosques, when we see the minarets um, in the Islamic mosques, those minarets um, are symbolic of the old pens, and it's symbolic of learning till the day we die. How fabulous is that? And so we should never stop learning and embracing um, and it doesn't have to always be, you know, big, meaningful things, but to stay curious about life, curious about people, and excited about possibilities. And that carries us an awful long way. Yeah. Yeah. Confession time. I found the lockdowns very, very tough. Yeah. I retreated creatively. Yes. And then I sort of retreated emotionally and then physically, you know. Yes. It, it was a tough time. Yes. And I saw this happening to other people as well. Absolutely. Um, and I know I should be more resilient. I know I know this isn't a big thing. And yet I woke up in the morning feeling really, really down for yes. months at a time. What do we do with these dark moments? I think the... I think the thing is to be we have to be kind to ourselves and I think what we do again in the West is we slap it slap ourselves around the head and you know we have all this inner talk about how far we are from where we need to be, which isn't helpful. And what I've come to in those moments is I kind of talk to that part of myself as I would a small child. And I don't mean condescendingly, it's embracing, nurturing. Yeah, this is this is a really tough time you're going through right now and to give oneself the warmth and nurture of that and then to look at what is that one thing I can do today that will bring a little bit of happiness and you know I know for me during the first lockdown one of the most joyous things was walking up the road to get um a chai latte, you know, a click-and-collect chai latte. And let's face it, I think our cafes were kind of – they kept so many people going emotionally, I think. That that having something made for you that you love, waiting for it, connecting with somebody outside the home and then enjoying every mouthful. So I think we keep it simple. I think we keep it kind. We allow ourselves to be vulnerable um, because we're human. And 
it's often out of those times that you said, for instance, creatively, Walter, it was a tough time. We go into, there are times when we have to be like the fallow field. And winter is that time as well for us. It's the time of the great unknowing in a way when everything doesn't seem certain anymore and, and it feels internal and and life doesn't feel as welcoming. So that we need to just sit with that kindly, I think, um, for the new part of us to emerge because that's what I feel these times about now, having been through countless dark nights of the soul now. Mm-hmm. And they continue. They continue. We must never fool ourselves that we're past that and it's never going to happen again. And I think if you know that, when it comes, you think, okay, here we go again. Right, you know, this is time for gentleness, nurture, littleness often during, you know, sometimes what we tend to do is want to burst out and do something flamboyant and it often doesn't have the kick we'd hoped but quiet little joys do. They kind of, you know, it's like gathering nuts like the squirrels do for winter. <laughs> Those little things just feed us. They do. They and do. and Walter, the fact that you can recognise that I think is huge, that each of us can recognise it. So often we just push that stuff away. And negative emotions, as I say in the book, they can be really helpful because mm. they can also get us to think about stuff and realise actually there's parts of my life, my friendships that are just not working. And that's great because generally we're going at such a pace, we're too busy to even notice. Yeah. Can I ask you a big question? Yes, I don't know (laughs) if I can answer it, but I'll try. (laughs) Do you think that our souls are calling us towards something bigger than our individual existence here on earth. Absolutely. And I think every time we touch that, um, and that's why I love India. I love it with a passion and it's a place I feel most at home in the world. Because there's something about that culture where the spirituality in everyday life and you can't avoid seeing life in all its shades there. It's one of the happiest places on the planet. Um, in spite of the difficulties a country it faces. Because it it awakens so many aspects of ourselves that I think in the West have grown dull. We live life in black and white. And when I go to India, it feels like I'm living life in colour. And I'm not just talking, <coughs> pardon me, about the colour of saris. I'm talking about the size of the spirit of people. Um, And that's where the volunteering comes in. Just being able to do something kind for somebody else. Random acts of kindness. It awakens something us and we, we get a sense of the bigger self of us that is within. And that's why we're attracted to fame and celebrity. Um, because it's a false sense of that. Um, but yes, when we can do stuff that's bigger than us, and I mean, you know, we again with 
with lockdown, you know, people were railing and, you know, not all decisions were perfect decisions, but hey, I wouldn't want to be in charge of 25 million people's health and well-being. But it was the people who said, you know what, I'm going to do the shopping for my neighbour or this and that. They were the people, you know, who found a way to do something with that time. And I think that's a secret, is to find something we can do that that without thinking it's going to have a benefit to us, and it always does. And that is the quest, I think, Walter, Yeah. to be honest. Maggie, you helped me out once. I was stuck overseas in a stressful situation, and I contacted you, and you taught me a meditation, which I started doing, and uh, I still do, every day to this day. And I have a special, beautiful rose quartz that I bought at that time, and it's my it's my sort of Maggie quartz, you oh, know. And <laughs> Walter. I sit with it. Maggie, how would you teach other people's spiritual practices? How yeah. would you how would you describe your own spiritual practice? Um, it's a very quiet thing in lots of ways, except when I'm teaching, I talk to others. But it is the absolute bedrock of my life, and I don't think. I could operate without it. So in the morning, um, I've taken from the First Nations spirituality, um, I welcome Grandfather Son and I do a blessing on the day for myself and all living things. I meditate um, and I would rather, if I have to get up at three o'clock in the morning to do my meditation before I begin the day, I would rather do that than get up at half past three and not meditate because meditation takes you far deeper than sleep and it sets the pace for the day for me. And um, I do find ways to connect with nature most days. That's become really important to me and I have my mystical places locally I have the trees who I certain trees that I have a relationship with and you know once you get into a relationship with these um, trees or plants they will if you ask them intuitively they will give you very wise answers and we live in a we live in a planet of great sentience and to give you an example I was giving a talk years back at Agiar bookshop a spiritual bookshop which is now gone but for those of you who remember it was on a very busy street in Clarence Street and I was giving this talk and it was rush hour and where you gave the talk was slightly below the pavement but you could see the windows people walking past and traffic lots of traffic and that because it was a Thursday night and there was this elderly lady sitting in the front row and she had very peculiar expressions on her face while I was talking. And as any of us knows, when you're giving a talk, you're very conscious of people's expressions. And I'm thinking, oh, this isn't working for her, you know. You know. Anyway, at the end of the talk, she came up to me and she said to me, oh, Maggie, she said, I wish you could have been sitting where I was sitting. And then I was stealing myself for, you know, some major criticism. And she said, the tree outside you while you were talking, every time you talked about your love of nature, 
She said its aura was ablaze with colours. She said it was just like this incredible splash of colour every time you talked about your love of nature. And I've had hundreds of examples of things like that about the sentience we, we are, you know, immersed in. And so my practice during the day is to connect with that sentience. And it really does feed the soul. And it's great for creativity too and problem solving. What a great tip. Develop a relationship with a favourite tree or plant. Yes. Yeah. Um, you mention nature very often. Uh, and I, yeah. I know of your great love of the desert. Yes. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes. Well, this is where life is so strange and wonderful. You know, my, my jobs in publishing, I was always flying here, there and everywhere. And I was on a plane one day and opened up the magazines and um, it had this story of this particular desert in Arizona um, where the Pueblo people live in cliffs. They used to live in cliffs, and we're talking about cliffs that are four, 5,000 feet, and they'd build villages kind of down from the top of the cliff in major kind of shelves of the cliff, as it were. And I just had this huge desire to go to this place. And I'd always loved deserts, which is weird, because I was born in the north of England, in Lancashire, you know, and then probably you can tell I have a New Zealand twang because I had my teenage life and uni life in New Zealand and then back in London and the rest of the time in Australia. And I'd always loved deserts, you know, and I'd always, there'd be brochures in New Zealand about coming to Australia for holidays, deserts. were, But I wasn't thinking of deserts when we went. I just needed to go and see these Pueblo places. And I had no desire to go to America because, you know, Vietnam War and all those things and you know, I was down on America. Anyway, I said to Derek, I'd love to go and I'm very blessed to have a partner who kind of leaps at these things. I have to be a bit careful what I say sometimes because <laughs> then I think, oh, actually, perhaps I didn't really need to do that. Anyway, long story short, we went and from the moment I got out into the desert, again, I felt I had come home because what deserts do is they strip you to your essence and that sounds very painful. It's not at all. All the stuff that burdens us in the cities, preconceptions about how other people are going to, you know, see us and what we should be doing and deadlines and careers and mortgages and all the stuff that press down on us. When we get out there, that vast space, we are a speck. And there's something very comforting about being a speck because when you're a speck, you kind of find your place in crea- the web of creation. You know, we're always wanting to be huge, but actually when we can be the speck, we take our rightful place. And the vistas of the deserts are amazing. You know, people drive through desert and they say there's nothing there. You've got to start looking and sensing because then the desert sings to you. And it's one of the most spiritual places on earth. And so we found the cliff dwellings. And would you believe these people were some of the most spiritual of all the Native American Indians? And they vanished en masse 
couple of centuries ago. The Western explanation is that there was a drought, although there's no records of where these people went. The Native Americans say they're still living there, but in a higher vibration. And those those Pueblo villages, if ever you can get to them, they are so charged. Amazing. They sound as They sound mm. as yeah. Um, I love the idea of existing on a higher vibration because, Maggie, there are things that we can't see, aren't there? There yeah. are. Yeah. And, you know, I think as science goes on, we will, we will know this um, at a scientific level because, you know, I think for a lot of people they're comforted to have the science. But um, this is something the ancients knew. And, I mean, you know, if we take ancient India, for instance, with the Ayurvedic medicines, which is thousands of years old, they talked about there being 180 different sounds in a month. Now, imagine your body is so attuned Mm. that you can hear those and that apparently when we're born... Every one of us is born into one of those sounds, which is a healing sound for us. But how would you know that? It's like the Dogon people who could see certain star formations. Fascinating, yeah, yeah. That we couldn't see until, you know, we had the the right equipment. Mm. Mm, But we need space and silence for that to up our sensitivity. Let's hope you've inspired our lis- listeners to create some of that space and some of that silence because um, you're quite right. We need it. We do need it, Walter. Maggie. Maggie, one final question we ask all our guests. What's one thing our listeners can start doing today to live a more expansive life? Um, I, want, I want people to... Dare to embrace what makes them deeply happy and to dare to embrace others and learn their stories. And the more different, the better. Because it's, and also to find that favorite park, that favorite place in your city that you love to be, and allow it to become sacred to you, to spend time there. Because sure as eggs, that's a place that's going to feed your soul. And when you do that, then you can go out and do all the other things you want to do. You can write books, plays, you know, have careers, relationships, do all those other things. But you come to them, hopefully, um, a more whole person than looking to other people to solve those bits of ourselves that it's up to us to solve. And deal with. Maggie, speaking of books and plays and other things, what, yes. are you working on, what are you working on right now? Ah, well, I've been working on a novel for a little while, and this is inspired by the last, my first novel. Very hard after doing all this research and to start to write novel writing. It's like learning to write all over again. But it's inspired by the last woman to be hung in England. And it's set in 50s and 60s UK. 
um, with 50s and 60s fashion, which I love. And it has the Profumo affair in, which is all to do with Russian spies and things like this. And um, I hope I've woven, I'm getting close to finishing now because I've been writing it over several years, um, a story that entrances. But I hope and also a deeply human story of... Um, of, you know, people and the decisions we make, some good, some bad. And one of the threads I love is it's also got um, this character ends up working for one of the key crime figures in London, Maury Connolly, who was a bad egg, kind of not quite as bad as the Cray brothers, but he was on that spectrum. And he had all these glamorous nightclubs in London, which she worked at one of them. And it was a very glam place to be. And really, if you were a girl from a poor home, this was your way out of this, you know. And it was filled full of racing car drivers, were the it guys then. And um, before the Russians and before the Arabs um, bought half of London, it was the Indian Maharajas. So they used to come to, to and of course, criminal elements and others would all come and to these nightclubs. So I hope it's quite a rich kind of world to dip into. We'll see. Oh, I can't wait for the novel. <laughs> can't wait. <laughs> Maggie, where can people find you um, and your books? Yes. Um, probably best my website, which is maggiehamilton.org. And my books are available at all good bookshops, including the beloved Better Read Than Dead, of course. Um, and a, a mountain of them. Maggie, it's been a blessing talking to you. And uh, I can't wait for the novel and I can't wait to see you and talk to you again. Thank you so much, Walter. This has been such fun. <laughs> Thank you for being always. on our podcast. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Expanded Thinking. Maggie's books can be purchased via the links in the show notes. Next week's show is our final episode. I'll be speaking with magician and mystic Andres Engracia about how to lead a more magical life. If you like our content, please remember to subscribe and, of course, leave us a review. Expanded Thinking Podcast is hosted by Walter Mason and produced by Talking Words. The podcast is recorded on Gadigal land. We wish to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. <laughs>